bets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the world champion. Here's the one, two, three. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, August the 25th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Welcome into another edition of the podcast here, everybody. Of course, just a few hours after a very disappointing uh, uh, weekend uh, with the Mets being swept by Atlanta. We'd, if we had done this podcast after the Indian series, it'd be a, a totally different podcast. But, you know, I, I'm going to start off by saying this. First of all, it's really not going to be tremendously different because with the, uh, you know, and this is just then, so, uh, you know, with the Nats beating the Cubs and the Phillies losing and Milwaukee losing, the gap widens, of course. I think the Nats have put themselves in the best position possible since they lost those two games against the Mets. They've really gone on a roll and and put them in a very comfortable position in the wild card. Um, and I continue to say I think 90 wins guarantees the Mets will be a playoff team, but that would require them being 23-9, and nine, and that's going to be a tall task. So, you know, right now uh, they're going to be looking at the second wild card. I think that's the most realistic play. And, uh, and and even after this sweep, which was very punishing, it's not the end of the world. And uh, and 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 we'll see uh, we'll see what our new guest, someone new to the show, uh, a new voice, and I like to get new voices on the show. Stephen Macri will be joining us in just a little bit. Had a chance to catch up with Stephen a little bit earlier this evening. Uh, he's a writer. He used to write for the USA Today Network. Has his own podcast called The Baseball Life at Stephen Macri on Twitter. So we could check him out. And he'll give us thoughts on everything. But here's where I will start off by saying that if you're listening to this and you expect me to tell you that Billy Hamilton and Adani Echeverry are the reasons why the Mets didn't win the weekend and are reasons why they're not going to make the playoffs, that's not going to happen because that's the most absurd thing I saw floating around Twitter. You know, things that uh, I, it's it's such a whiny instant reaction it's it's an in a moment angry situation because you see a player that was available and I'm not saying either one of those guys couldn't help the roster what I'm saying is is that 
when they made those decisions, they felt they had just as good, if not better, players. I think Joe Panic is a better player than Adetti Echeverria, and and he filled a need. Uh, and and they already have their version of Billy Hamilton and Rajay Davis. And I'm not sure Billy Hamilton, although he's useful, uh, is really solving some of their needs. And if you knew the 40-man roster situation and what's coming up with potentially Brandon Nemo and uh, Jed Lowry coming back, you know how unrealistic it is for either one of those guys to still be on the roster, especially Hamilton. So let's get that out of the way. I think from a positive note, instead of worrying about those guys, the Mets are about to acquire, in, in maybe as early as this week, uh, uh, or in the next two weeks, two of the top 25 players from last year in Jed Lowry and Brandon Nemo. These guys were top 25 players last year if you look at wins above replacement on baseball reference. Now, I don't know what version of these guys you're going to get coming into September. I certainly think Nemo could help. Here's a guy that, huge on-base guy, a uh, guy with some pop, has energy. I think he's the kind of guy that could give them that that kick that you need as you continue to go through the dog days of August and now into the meat and potatoes of September. There's really no taking your foot off the gas. Everyone's tired. Everyone's banged up. Um, so, you know, they got to just move past this. They lost three really tough games. Uh, all three they could have won. Realistically, I think they should have won at least two, uh, but they didn't. So you now you move on. Uh, this team continues to play close games, and the formula, when they're in a game, seven innings from their starter, um, and then you try to win it with your offense in the bullpen over the last six to nine outs. And coming out of the Kansas City series, I said they needed to clean up some things, and I think they were fine in the in- Indian series, but against the Braves, you saw some sloppy defense from guys like Frazier and J.D. Drew, and the timely hitting went out the window. Um, look, the 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 real thing is, this team is in every game, and when you play games close to the vest, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. They've been winning those at a very high rate, much higher than probably, which is realistic. That's what they needed to do to get back in the race. Um, but now things are going to normalize and level out, and unfortunately it happened this weekend, and the Braves are a tough team. I was doubtful about them earlier in the year. Um, even with some of their injuries, they've been able to come through and get some guys to play valuable roles, like Francisco Silvelli and so on, and they have some real elite hitters that give you a fit at the top of the lineup, like Acuna Jr. and, and Freddie Freeman, and look, Josh Donaldson was one of those guys that I thought, eh, you sign him for one year, uh, but he's done, he's had a lot of injuries. Uh, he's been as good as he's ever been. He's an elite third baseman. It'll be interesting to see how they, uh, with Austin Riley, uh, figure that thing out for next year and what kind of contract Donaldson will want. But Here's the thing. Don't worry about a couple of uh, significantly below league average players in Hamilton and uh, Echeverria. You've got two really good players potentially joining the roster in the next couple of weeks. And and that, to me, is what the, the real positive can be coming out of this weekend. Now, the big concern for me in the weekend, and really what was the annoying part of the weekend, is the Zach Wheeler start. And I don't want to pick on Zach because you guys who have listened to the program know that I haven't always been a Zach Wheeler fan. And I think he's made tremendous strides over the last, uh, not calendar year, but physical year from the second half of of last year. And I don't say he's been bad this year, but when you start to really peel the onion, for every great outing that he had against Miami or Pittsburgh, you have these outings like he's had against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium or the Nats for a few times or his last two outings against the Braves where he really doesn't bring it. He doesn't really keep you in the game. He gets you behind. Um, he puts you in a bad spot. 
And as you go across his game log, there seems to be a lot of those against quality teams. Now, he's also had great outings against the Yankees at Citi Field, and he pitched well against the Braves earlier this year in April. Uh, But I feel like a lot of his work has been done, and I don't have all the numbers against sub-500 teams, but I feel he's done a lot of his work against inferior teams, which is fine. A lot of players get a lot of their hits against bad pitching, too. That's how you become a great player. You compete against the great and good lineups, and you do as well as you can, but you really feast on the bad ones. That's Everybody does that. But while we're all sitting around worried about Marcus Stroman and how he compares, I've seen some comparisons out there to Jason Vargas. Uh, to me, the real thing is Zach Wheeler. Now, Zach over the final five weeks is not just a, a, a instrumental in, again, the formula has to be seven strong innings from your starters. If the Mets don't get that, the odds of them winning that game are, are, are significantly less because they can't overpower anybody in the other two facets of the game. They don't, they're not good enough. This is where they're elite, and they're simply better than almost everybody. Um, so I look at Wheeler's ERA+, plus and it's towards the bottom of the league with guys like Joe Musgrove, you know, guys who, you know, you wouldn't expect to see Wheeler's name in. But then you look at some of the peripheral numbers, like fielding independent pitching or wins above replacement, and he's in the top 15. And you scratch your head as you start to look at what your eyes show you, and you're like, well, what do you have here? Now, it doesn't really matter. They got to go with Zach Wheeler the rest of the year. And a good Zach Wheeler is necessary because sometimes, and now you heard Steven Matz has a blister. You don't know what you're going to get at Matz. And that's okay out of the fifth starter because Matz as a fifth starter is better than most any team's fifth starter. Uh, and he's better than what you would have gotten out of Jason Vargas. Uh, but to me, Wheeler all of a sudden regressing and playing more of that fifth starter role takes a significant strength that the Mets have in the starting rotation, and it kind of dampens it a little bit. And they don't really have the ability to uh, afford something like this right now. They need to be a team that has elite starting pitching every night, has just enough offense, and and has enough outs from the bullpen where it can't hurt them. And they can put those guys in positions where they can be successful. And Wheeler is the perplexing guy. And I don't know what to expect. And surely the conversation is not today about whether they should resign Wheeler. There's plenty of time for that when the season's over. But right now, I'm not sure Wheeler's giving the team exactly what we thought he's giving. And this is not going to be a second guess about trading him. Because again, if you know, you're going to go and get a compensatory pick for him. There's a ton of value for that, and you can get whatever you can get out of him down the stretch, uh, and you figure out what his market is in the offseason, because there's still value to him. But with a guy who's a below-league average pitcher, who seems to not do well against the teams that matter, you start to wonder what kind of pitcher Zach Wheeler is. And to me, that's the real story this weekend, not a Donny Echeverry or a Billy Hamilton. Now, the other last thing about this weekend is these players' uniforms. And I am not going to be the get-off-my-lawn type that complains about these awful uniforms that look like stormtroopers. The first night, I couldn't tell who the hell was up. I mean, it's, and I'm like a guy of routine. I like to, you know, everything to be the same. So, you know, you see somebody up, you're like, well, who is that? I can't even see the name on the back. I think the biggest problem with baseball right now is that they they try to f- figure out what they should be to a new audience. And anybody who's out there, whether it's you individually as a, as a brand, you know, when you're dating, um, when you're trying to run a business, if you try to figure out what the other person wants you to be, 
more than likely you're going to fail. And I feel with this player's weekend, that's what baseball's doing. They're forcing it a little bit. Whether it be the nicknames, which I don't even know if these nicknames are what these guys want, or they're kind of trying to figure out what they put on the back. Uh, or the crazy colors, which I don't know if that's supposed to be a new trend. Maybe I'm the one who's out of touch. Uh, I think baseball hurts itself by doing these things. And if baseball really wants to connect with the fans, and I don't know if you could legislate this, but when I watched the 1995 documentary on the Seattle Mariners and the wild card and saw how excited that city got about that team's run to the postseason, and then I think about today, and I understand the circumstances in that situation were a lot different because that was a city fighting for its survival and a stadium. But just think of it in a vacuum for a second. That team in today's game, they'd, they'd want them to rip apart and trade some of the veterans so they could build for next year. And that's what they were advocating a lot of teams to do. When you look at this National League wildcard race, every day teams are flipping and flopping. you got the Phillies and the Brewers and the Cubs and the Nats, and they'll be a great whoever is the second wild card. There'll be a great playing game. And some of those teams, whether it be the Mets or even the Nats, they're not going to just roll over when the Dodgers play them. They got good starting pitching. And bullpens kind of even things out as you get deeper into games. So there should be a lot of talk and a lot of excitement about that. That's what you should be marketing. Uh, be yourself. You know, Maybe it's about more games like the Field of Dreams game they're having next year. Um, you know, the game that they have for the Little League, maybe they should do more of those off-site, quirky, cool things. Um, but to me, uniforms and goofy names and trying to become what you would think that the fans want, you're never going to be the NBA. You're too close. The NBA players are too close to the court, and they have a personality. And the NFL is a gambling sport. If you really want to talk about the sport, how many people really watch the games in depth who are casual fans versus watching the games for drinking, hanging out, eating, and and then their fantasy team. I mean, uh, yeah, you have hardcore fans, but you know how many can explain an offense to you when you're in a bar on a Sunday or a Chili's on a Sunday? They can't. Um, so you're, you're competing in different arenas. You're competing with different things. And I feel this Players Weekend is a very sad attempt at marketing the game and if they want to do a player's weekend, I'm not a marketing guru. Um, I think I think there's a better way. I think the uniforms are poorly done. The nicknames I have no issue with, uh, but maybe they have to be more organic. Uh, maybe there's something better for the player's weekend. Uh, I don't know. But uh, you know, to me, promoting your game and what makes your game great. You know, the, the thing I think they did, the, the best thing that baseball's done in the last 30 years is they had the wild card because it got more cities involved. It allowed you to create a tournament-like component to the postseason. And I understand the traditionists will say it's 162 games and that's the tournament, but that's the grind. And even getting into this final, you know, round of four, right? It's hard over 162 games. Actually, 163 when you play the, the playing game. Um, and then it's a tournament. And then it's fun. And I think tournaments are a lot like March Madness. And it promotes you know more gambling and more short-term interest and things like that. And uh, September could make it, uh, you know, as much as the NFL starts off, you have some good pennant races in places. They're still going to be paying attention to baseball. Let's put it that way. So that's my two cents. I think the uniforms are awful. I didn't understand all the nicknames. I'm not really going to get too deep into it. Maybe we'll ask Stephen Macri his, his thoughts. 
But that's the only part of this weekend. Overall, it was not a great weekend here in New York for Mets baseball. Between the uniforms, the games, all the things that have been so much fun and we've been able to have so much fun talking about aren't a negative. But again, um, I'm not changing what this team is about after three games. This doesn't tell me anything differently about this team. It basically tells me this team plays games close to the vest and they have to do a lot of little things and they have to get big hits and they have to make big pitches and they didn't do it this weekend. Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Stephen Macri, new guest, is going to join me. Let's hear his thoughts on this. Stephen was a, a writer for the USA Today Network, also has a podcast called the Baseball Life Podcast, at Stephen Macri on Twitter. Let's hear what he has to say. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We like to look back at Mets history at the Talking Mets podcast, like on August 10th, 2017, when Dave Malicki joined me as we remembered his shutout of the Yankees in the first ever Subway Series in 1997. The thing that always comes to my mind was just obviously just, you know, striking out Jeter to end the game. That was like, um, the, you know, that was that was a thrill. But, that, you know, the game was in hand at that point, obviously, and I had the bullpen warming up and everything was going. But um, that's that's the, you know, the big memory I have. Um, some other ones just some, or some other strikeouts. Um, you know, early, you know, in the middle middle parts of the game, I and I did. I gave up a bunch of hits. I felt like I could, you know, the big guys I was getting out, and then um, not the little guys. You don't want to say that, but the, the back end of the order, I had trouble with those guys. And um, you know, that that's that's where I you know I got into trouble. I feel like I gave up a hit almost every inning. I was like, holy cow! But it was just I, I felt like I could get out of anything, which was which was really um, and a good feeling. And um, you know, I think to start the game, I think Jeter got a hit, reached out an error on second, and then got and then I you know got the next three guys out. And I didn't let him advance, and that that gave me a ton of confidence. Just that first inning really kind of set the tone for me. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back, and uh, joining us is Stephen Macri. He has a podcast called The Baseball Life Podcast, also has written for USA Today Network, uh, has a book coming out about Penn State. You can check him out on Twitter, at Stephen Macri, and he's going to join us after a disappointing weekend sweep uh, Mets at the hands of the Atlanta Braves. A new voice to the show. We always like to get different takes. So, Stephen, welcome to the program, and I know you're on Twitter, and you're pretty active. I see you there all the time, and you know, it's funny. I'll start off. You'd be amazed at how uh, after a tough three games, games that it could have gone either way, that a lot of the fans are blaming the fact that the Mets don't have Billy Hamilton and Adani Hachavaria as the reason why not only did they lose this weekend, but, you know, may not make the playoffs. So it just goes to show you a few days after the Cleveland sweep, how quickly things change in the world of social media and the fan base. No, and uh, real quick, thank you for having me, Mike. Um, definitely a big fan of your podcast. Uh, you definitely tell it how it is. And not a lot of Mets fans are realistic out there, so I'm happy to see that on your podcast. And the whole Billy Hamilton thing is kind of ridiculous to me because at best, in this point of his career, Billy Hamilton is a bench player. And it's it's nice to have a little bit of speed off the bench, but that, that's not that's not Mets baseball right there. And uh, they – you know, they, they could use some more small baseball, some stolen bases, but I just I didn't think there was enough space on this team, especially with guys like McNeil uh, coming back. Uh, and Nimmo's on the verge of coming back. Uh, you know, in a few weeks, hopefully we'll have Jed Lowry back. So 
I just I didn't see where there was room. And as for Hetch, uh, I mean, they got rid of him for a reason. I mean, it, it was a little it was a little disheartening. It was right before he was going to get a nice sizable bonus, but uh, that's the business for you. So uh, I, I didn't really see a need for either player on this team right now. No, I I agree with you. And look, I I think the the formula this weekend shows you the good and and the bad maybe of this team. You know, you get your six, seven innings out of your starters, and then you leave it up to your bullpen. You play games uh, close to the vest. You play them tight. They've won a lot of these games. Uh, Certainly, Atlanta's been a thorn in their side. Uh, My opinion really hasn't changed, and I'm not trying to rationalize the three games here. Very painful to get swept when you're in the kind of race they're in. You know, they're going to be two to three games behind the Cubs right now. They're in the middle of a game with uh, the Nats as uh, we record this. But they're right there in the muck. Now, I think the games against Chicago are really important. I think they need to really turn the uh, the page here quick because those are games where you can uh, make, up, uh, make up ground. So I'm not ready to say all of a sudden all is lost, but I know there's a lot of despair out there. Um, but I didn't really change my opinion of this team over the weekend. I just think because of the kind of team they are, they didn't get the bounces or they didn't get the big hits or make the big pitches that they've been making for the better part of what, four to five weeks. Well, this weekend was a little bit of a tough tail to swallow because it seemed like this team was ready to make that big run kind of like 2015 where they weren't going to take a step back at any point. And coming off that sweep of the Indians, a very good Indians team at that, it was just, it wasn't something they needed. It just kind of showed some glaring holes that this team has. And they kind of live and die by the, the late innings because if you notice, a lot of the times when the Mets win baseball games, it's in the eighth or ninth inning or it's in extra innings. And it really, it's really impactful what the bullpen does because you know what you're getting, at this point, you know what you're going to get out of your starting pitching. Uh, Steven Matz has been great during this run. Uh, Jacob DeGrom's back to his Cy Young self, so that that's great to see. Syndergaard has really vamped it up for this team, so I'm happy to see that. Wheeler, obviously, he, he can make some improvements, but uh, you, for the most part, you know what you're going to get out of starting pitching, but as for the bullpen, it's just it's just, it's inconsistent, kind of, because now Diaz is injured, and uh, he, he looks like he, he was kind of getting better. Um, you know, Brad Brock's been, for the most part, a pretty nice addition. Uh, Seth Lugo's been great, but outside of that, I, I don't know how much trust I have in some of the other guys, and uh, it came back to bite them this weekend, those late innings, so yeah, th- this is a team that, um, you know, those, those late innings really tell the story for this team. Yeah, absolutely. I have Stephen Macri with me, uh, at Stephen Macri on Twitter. You know, you brought up Wheeler, and he's kind of the one that, over the last couple of weeks, and and, and I never was a Zach Wheeler fan for many, many years. He wasn't my kind of pitcher. He labored. He threw too many pitches. You know, he always knew the mechanics were suspect. He had Tommy John surgery. Uh, but then he had the second half last year, and he, and, he, and he won me over. And this year he had been uh, inconsistent, but I still felt, hey, you know, you saw a better version of Zach Wheeler. Now, my problem is this, is I, I go through the game logs, and I'm not just picking on him because he had a lousy outing on Saturday, and he, or he had a lousy outing uh, against Atlanta two weeks ago. I start to look at some of the games, you know, like the first game of the doubleheader against the Yankees, bad outing. He's had a couple of bad outings, uh, more than a couple of bad outings against the Nats, another really good offensive team. You see how the Braves uh, have, have handled them. Now, he's also pitched well against some of those teams. Uh, but to me, 
I know he's playing for a contract, and I know that the decision to resign him comes later on. That's not the priority now. But there's part of me that I look at the ERA plus. I see it at ERA plus at 93 after yesterday's game, and that's at the bottom of those ERA qualifiers. He's he's in the same ballpark as guys like Joe Musgrove. But then you look at the you know non ERA analytics, the FIP, the wins above replacement, and he's like in the top 15 and. Then I look at what my eyes say, and I'm like, you know, he's still a guy that against a good offensive team, he seems to be leaving me wanting because I keep going back to the Yankee game. I keep going back to the Nat game. I look at him against Atlanta. You know, they have a good pitched game on Saturday. They probably win that game, a game they really could have used after a tough Friday loss. So to me, he's a bit of a dilemma because I don't want to pick on him, but I feel that game or his Saturday start was a key to the weekend. That, that's the baffling part, that it's his contract year, and you're getting a 4.5 ERA out of this guy. Uh, he, he's going to get paid just because of what his stuff is. He brings a 95-plus a mile-per-hour fastball consist, consistently. His off-speed, when it's on, it's definitely on for sure. So, um, But that, that's, a, that's the story of Wheeler, and at 29 years old, uh, I think this is what you're going to get out of the guy. It's inconsistency because – just take a look back at last year in the second half. Uh, he got lit up in the first half when they were playing semi-meaningful baseball. And then the second half when they were way out of contention, that's when he relaxed a little bit and he turned it on. And uh, I'm not going to take any credit from Wheeler. He, he was as good as probably DeGrom in the second half last year. And that's that's a big statement right there. But he just returned to old form this year where he, I don't feel confident with him on the mound ever. I you know, there's great starts like the one a few weeks ago against the White Sox where he gets those seven plus innings for his ball. And then you see these past two Atlanta Braves starts where the guy in five innings gives up 12 hits. And you're not going to survive if you're giving up 12 hits a game. It's just that that means you're throwing a lot of pitches. You're not getting deep into that game. And that's that's a downfall for the Mets because they, they need these guys to really go seven plus innings right now. And you, you hate to tire out the arms just in case they do make that one-game playoff and then they somehow make the postseason. But uh, I've said this his whole career. I, I think Zach Wheeler is a head case. I think he gets to himself, and that leads to him throwing the ball over the plate. He hangs some of his off-speed stuff. He leaves his fastball high. I saw him earlier in the year where he faced off against Max Scherzer. I believe it was uh, – Probably the first home series. I think it was like the third game of their first home series. I could be wrong there. Um, but he, he walked something like seven, eight guys that game. And I, I was watching from center field. I had the seat right by the apple there. And the guy, the, the strike zone from that umpire, it, it was crazy. It, it was very tight that game. But Max Scherzer was on the mound, and he, he really made the best of it, and he went deep into the game. And that, that shows the difference between a Max Scherzer type of a great pitcher in this game, something that Zach Wheeler, a lot of people predicted to become compared to what Zach Wheeler is, somebody who, when he doesn't get a few things his way, when he gets somebody on first and second, he's not going to survive that inning. Not, not at all. And, and, and uh, look, again, for another time about resigning him, but, you know, certainly um, right now, if you, if you had to look at giving him three or four, three or four year deal, you'd probably have to think twice. I mean, I'll give you some of the names that are in that. And again, you could, you could dial him down by a lot of different advanced metrics, FIP, uh, war. He, he, he plays out really well. 
Um, but you look at them, you got guys like Mike Leake and Rick Porcello who's not having a good year. Adam Wainwright, who's on the back end of his career. Uh, Miles Mikolos. I mean, these are guys that he's in that right. sphere with. And I'm saying to myself, you know, and again, I'm not criticizing the Mets for not trading him because he's a solid pitcher. And for what they want to do uh, here, which was try to compete, if you weren't going to get something really good. Um, but I laugh because you look at what Noah Syndergaard is doing as he's improved. And it seems like any, anything everybody wants to say is, well, Wheeler's really good. The Mets are not using him properly or they're not using the right analytics properly. And I guess if he leaves and he goes to one of those teams, we'll find out. But I think you, you succinctly put it. You know, I think this is who he is. And to a certain degree, he reminds you a little of like how, you know, Sid Fernandez used to drive you nuts back in the day. He used to have this great stuff, but then he would have these lousy yeah. outings and things like that. So, I mean, right now, if you had a game that you had to win, I mean, you take away DeGrom um, out, of that, out of that mix, you know, I mean, any of the other guys, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be Wheeler that you'd put there, even though he has good numbers in the second half. Uh, he's the guy that worries me the most. And I know people talk about Stroman because he struggled. But he's transitioned from a, another team. I always give those guys a bit of a break. Wheeler's yeah. been here. It's, to me, Wheeler's the guy I worry about down the stretch. Well, what makes Stroman so great is uh, his locker room presence. So even when he's having a hard time on the field, he still brings high spirits in the locker room. And that goes a long way because take a look at back at Jason Vargas. Uh, the guy was obviously in the situation with Mickey Callaway where they got into it with the Newsday writer, Tim Healy. And I feel like there was kind of a black cloud following the team the next few weeks. And the Mets ended up trading Vargas for a double-A catcher who was actually repeating double-A. So uh, that, that says a lot about what they thought about Vargas, who was actually having a really, really solid season for the Mets. And at a t- one point in the year, he was actually their most consistent pitcher on the roster. But it, you're right with Wheeler. Um, I, I don't like to look at sabermetrics. I'm not one of those guys who obsess over it. But I I think baseball, you can sit down and you can watch a guy and it tells a story. And I think the Mets are kind of holding on hope that this once electric guy that they, they got in return for the Carlos Beltran trade is going to turn into that, uh, you know, one through three pitcher that they thought he was going to be. I, I never thought, I don't think they ever thought he was going to be the ace of the staff, but they would have been happy with, you know, the two, the three pitcher. And I think that's what they thought Wheeler was going to become this season. It just hasn't happened. And now that makes you a little worried for the off season where you, you, it's a toss up what you do with Wheeler. Do you keep him and give him that big money or do you put it elsewhere? It's, it's a tough situation there. But I definitely, if, if I'm going for some, with someone other than DeGrom, it probably be, at this point of the season, it'd probably be Syndergaard because the guy in August, he, he has a 1.73 ERA. He's been fantastic in the second half and he, he's really turned it on and became what they really hoped for because, I think Syndergaard, he lets his emotion get to him. I think he wasn't happy in the beginning of the season. I think there was a lot of rumblings in the clubhouse that got to him. I think, um, you know, that the media was getting to him. But now that that's all behind him, he's left it there, and he's really turned it on. And, unfortunately, Wheeler hasn't been able to do that so far. Yep. It also reminds me a little of Masahiro Tanaka of the Yankees, who has those really great stretches, and then he, you know, he'll, he'll have one of those – those flame out games. And they're very similar. And you look at some of their, their numbers, Stephen Macri with me uh, at Stephen Macri on Twitter, the baseball life podcast, also writing a book about Penn state uh, as written for the USA uh, today network. Uh, I'll give you somebody who's probably pretty close to coming back and maybe you'll see him as early 
as the upcoming week. And, and I think he's underrated, and I think they've missed him, even though he's been out and he hasn't performed pretty much the entire season. And that's Brandon Nemo. And Nemo's another guy, I'll be honest. I always was never a huge fan. You know, he never really hit a lot in the minors. I think at one point there was rumors that he was going to be traded for Jay Bruce before they actually traded Dilson Herrera. And, you know, they didn't. And uh, I was always, you know, I know it was Sandy Elderson's first pick, but he was a guy that had these tools, but I was like, can he play baseball? And then all of a sudden he has this year last year where he wins me over his energy, his on base, extreme uh, high level on base skills. And I look, and again, I, we could go back into advanced analytics. You look at wins above replacement. He's a top 25 player in baseball, uh, you know, having a, a higher wins above replacement than guys like JT Real Muto and uh, Matt Olson and Cody Bellinger. Now, I'm not saying he's necessarily better than Cody Bellinger, but when I look at the package on base, the lefty bat, the power, the energy, I know defensively he's, you know, not great out there, but he's improved a lot since when he was a younger player. Uh, I think this is a key piece they could bring back. Now they could play a little offense defense with uh, Ligaris coming in late, late in the game in center field. You know, when you, when you maybe, you, you know, against the tough righty, you could uh, sit JD Davis. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do with uh, Nemo coming back. I think if he's healthy and he seems to be, he's got three hits today. I think this is a big piece coming into uh, the, the stretch run. See, that's that's the question that's been running through my head all weekend. It's just I, I don't know what Mickey Callaway and the Mets are going to do when these guys come back, when you see Brendan Nimmo come back. Uh, Jed Lowry, I, I don't know how productive he can be for the 2019 season, but I'm sure at some point in September they'll try to get him at bats. But going back to Nimmo, I don't think what he gave you in the beginning of 2019 is a Brendan Nimmo type. I, I think it was pretty obvious that he was dealing with injuries for a few weeks, maybe most of the season. I think last season, 2018, when, you know, he did have the high war, um, he, he was your leadoff hitter for the most part. I think that's what a Brendan Nimble type season is, where you get the 17 homers, um, you know, you, you uh, have around the 270 average, uh, you get a few stolen bases out of him as well. Um, I, I think that's what you're going to get out, out of Nimble. I don't think he'll ever be, the power hitter, I don't think he'll ever be, um, you know, a high average guy like a 300 hitter. But I, I think he's a consistent, everyday player for the Mets if he's healthy. And but that's also back to the case where, what do you do with JD Davis, McNeil, Conforto, all those guys in the outfield? Because at this point in the season in August, I hate moving young players, and uh, we've seen it in the past where they've done that, and it's been like the downfall of players where. Um, I'm surprised it's actually working out where uh, the Mets have had his, a history of sending guys off and them reestablishing their career. In J.D. Davis's case, it's worked out. And then they've had a history of trying to move guys to the outfield, like we just viewed it. I believe they did it with Daniel Murphy at one point, and it just didn't work out for those guys. And they returned to their original position. But for McNeil and J.D. Davis, it's it's really been great. Like they, they haven't changed anything at the plate for them. They haven't been overthinking any of the plays in the outfield. Um, it's been a pretty big success for the Mets so far. But now the question with Nimmo, I wish, I absolutely wish that they could bring J.D. Davis back into the infield. And I know I said I don't like moving guys around, but some of the faulty plays that Todd Frazier has made at third base has cost them games and the momentum of the game as well. And Todd Frazier had another one this weekend against the Braves where if he makes a play, maybe that's the difference in the game. And 
uh, J.D. Davis is not any better at third base. I remember that, that joke of a performance he had against the Miami Marlins earlier in the season, like very early in the season, but at least, um, you know, he's bringing a 300 bat and he's bringing offense where Todd Frazier has gone through his slumps this season. And you really don't need that because Frazier's been getting plugged in at like, what, the six hole consistently. And um, he, he's been clutch at times, but I'd rather have a Brendan Nimmo, Conforto, um, Actually, you can't really do that because that's three lefties in the outfield. So uh, it, it's going to be tough getting playing time. I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I, I would like to see. Um, I, I would like to find Nimmo, Conforto, and McNeil all in the lineup at once. So if that means uh, moving McNeil back into the infield, maybe do that. But uh, I don't think you can have three lefties at the same time either. So I really don't know what the Mets are going to do with that scenario. I've been thinking about it all weekend, and it's, it's a tough one that they're going to have on their hands. It's, a, it's, it's good actually, too because it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing because you have Jed Lowry too. You talk about offensive production, and look, we can make the jokes. He's been missing in action, the back of a milk carton. I get all that. Uh, you know, there's probably been a lot more to that injury that than what we know, and, and maybe we'll find out whenever he makes his way back to City Field. You know, he's down in, in, in high A doing his rehab. But here's a guy that was a top 25 offensive player last year as well. So you're adding two top 25 offensive players to this team. And the dilemma is, well, where do we play them? I mean, think about that. That's a pretty good problem to have. They're, you know, they're, someone's going to be part-time. It's probably going to be a little bit of Frazier. I don't think Lowry could play every day. I think he's going to be a spot guy, a pinch hitter. And same thing with Nimmo. Who knows uh, what you're going to do because you talk about lineup and chemistry. But think about right now in August with the waiver deadline and all that going away. Everyone's complaining about Billy Hamilton and Denny Echeverria, one of got who was on the roster. You've got two top 25 offense or not just yeah offensive players. Wins above replacement adds offense and defense. But players from 2018 that are going to be on your roster in the next two weeks, I think. Think about that. And think about how silly it is when we worry about some of these other things. And and we we forget about Joe Panic too, who has been excellent for the Mets ever since he came home. Uh, you know, he's the homegrown talent. He went out and won a World Series with the Giants, and then you know he, he did have a tough season with them this year, and they they you know parted ways for Scooter Gannett to come in and play for them. But he's been great for the Mets. And what happens when Jed Lowry's back? When um, you know, Nimble comes off the DL. Where where are you putting these guys? Is Panic and McNeil like is McNeil gone to second base so you can put these guys in the outfield? And then where does Panic go? Maybe shift them over to third base. But then what happens to Frazier and Jed Lowry when they come back? It, it's it is good to have all the stuff because I think one of the biggest things the Mets did in 2015 is they traded for um, two guys to come off the bench and ultimately start some games. And uh, I believe it was Juan Uribe and uh, was it um, Johnson? What was his first name? Kelly, uh, Kelly Johnson. You had Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe they got from the Braves. So Yeah, um, and, and they were great. I, I'll never forget that that line drive double Uribe had where he flipped the bat. That thing was smoked. Uh, that, that was a big turning point. I, I mean, Cespedes – made a second-half MVP run during that year. But Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson were great as utility guys off the bench. And uh, it sounds like the Mets are going to have that in September, but they got to survive this part, this stretch, because the Cubs are coming to town this week, and that, that's a 
very important series for them because that's a team that's two games ahead of them. And then the Phillies right after that, so uh, they're away at Citizens Bank Park. So we'll, we'll see what happens, I guess. I'll, I'll wrap up with this, and I have Stephen Macri with me, uh, at Stephen Macri on Twitter, new uh, voice of the show. Always like to get new people on and, and listen to what they have to say. And uh, Players Weekend, and I'm not going to make a big deal. I don't, I'm not the kind of guy on this podcast that gets into uniforms and – tickets and all that stuff because you know a lot of the times there's not a heck of a lot you can do but I understand what the the game is trying to do they try to market themselves better but the thing I always say about any sport is that you have to be honest about who you are what you're good at and what you're not and if you're a business or even a person or like even if you're doing a podcast like you can't try to be a bad copy Ernie Harwell told told me a long time ago when I interviewed him you know be yourself don't be a, a bad copy even a good copy is not as, as good as a bad original, so to speak. Because um, you, you, you want to have your own kind of like thing going on. And I feel like, forget about how horrible the uniforms are. I mean, the Mets uniforms, I don't know what they were thinking of. I mean, what were they, stormtroopers or something? Um, and I guess I could deal with the nicknames. That doesn't really bother me. If the players are into that and they want those nicknames, I'm fine with that. Um, but to me, I just feel like baseball just is trying too hard with some of this stuff whether it be juicing the ball. I know they're going to play with the rules next year with relief pitchers. I think that that's going to have some uh, bad unintended consequences. It may add some strategy, but I don't think any of that's really solving the issues that they're looking for. And I almost wish they'd promote the game as what it is about this great wild card. If, if there's anything, the fact that there was fans that are at this point upset that the Mets didn't sell their roster off and they competed for the wild card, Um, That, to me, is a mindset of the fans that's even more detrimental than anything you could do marketing-wise. Like, I think this National League wildcard race is exactly what the sport is, and they should be touting it. But instead, the media is criticizing some of these teams, like the Mets, saying, hey, you guys should be – you know, you're not good enough. Um, You know, why be 68 and 63 when you could just, you know, sell off and and try to be great five years from now? And I'm like, I don't think you can legislate that. I don't think you could do anything about that, but that to me is as much the problem because if every year you had teams playing it out responsibly without hurting their future, because I think there's ways to do that. This is what you market. You know, you, I was watching the 95 Seattle documentary on MLB network and that's really cool. That whole thing, how big was that was for the season at Seattle and think about today's day and age, forget the whole ballpark thing. People be telling them to sell off. Sell your veterans off, get prospects, rebuild for next year. So to me, I think they're trying too hard. They're trying in the wrong places, and uh, I applaud them for trying to be different. But I think these the games with the little leaguers and the, the Field of Dreams game they're doing next year, I think that's a little bit of a better play for them than anything they can do with goofy uniforms. Oh, yeah. Players Weekend, whoever came up with the uniforms they struck out, uh, the nicknames just – they seem like – they kind of put in like half the effort into some of these people. Like just look at JD Davis. I'm reading it right now. His nickname was Dizzle. Like what, what kind of nickname is that? But like you said, it, it, that's not the big deal because it, it's how the team's playing on the field. That's the biggest advertisement for any organization. And the fact that the Mets were able to bring in Stroman, turn the thing around during a stretch where they were facing not so great teams and then actually win some important series against the Nationals and then the Indian sweeping, it, it really started to fill the seats. And I remember that national series, I, you know, any Mets fan, I think follows Joe DeMeo on Twitter, and he, he was 
saying this is the most electric I've seen this stadium. I, I believe he said since 2015. And uh, I, you know, DeMeo, another guy who tells it how it is, and I enjoy following him as well. And if you're a Mets fan, you should definitely check him out. But um, I, I think the MLB has made some decent strides this season because they really fell behind on the times with the social media and the uh, finding ways to get to fans. Uh, you know, the NFL really has mastered that art. The NBA is really starting to. Uh, become a lot better in that as well. But MLB was, you know, it's a traditional sport. It's America's pastime. They like to stick with their ways. And I, I think finally they're realizing if we don't change some things, we're going to fall behind those other sports. And the London series, I actually talked about this when it was happening at the time. I think that was fantastic for baseball. And it kind of took a page out of the NFL's uh, playbook by going overseas to London because the NFL has been doing that for a few years. And it, it, it was a hit. That, that was a sold-out stadium. Um, London really got to see what MLB is about in current times because there was a lot of offense on that. And I think it's it's pretty obvious that they used the baseball this year. And the last time I seen baseball watched consistently, consistently where people were glued to the television screen was the 98 season where uh, Sammy Sosa and McGuire squared off and they had that home run chase. So that was during my whole time of watching baseball, uh, that was probably the most excitement I saw where everyone around baseball, uh, it didn't, it wasn't just the Cardinals. It wasn't just, they were watching consistently, you know, they were consistently watching every night and uh, seeing what happened between those two. And now it, it's, it's a fault of, you know, the millennial mindset where we don't have much, much patience. And uh, I used to, when I was in journalism, I was told that, you know, you really have to catch somebody with your opening lead. The first, you know, 10 seconds of a read is important because people zone out so quickly. So you really have to tell the story right from the start. And I think it's the same with baseball. I don't think a lot of fans appreciate, you know, Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer going out there and squaring off against each other and throwing, you know, the game being 2-1 at the end in the ninth inning. I love that because I grew up a pitcher when I played and, um, you know, that stuck with me. I love the art of pitching and I love following the Pitching Ninja page on Twitter because he shows all the different pitchers and their, you know, their the different pitches they throw and their windups and stuff like that. It's a cool page, and but not a lot of fans like that. I think that page brought a little bit of excitement back to to the art of pitching, but people like offense, so they like uh, Bellinger and Yelich uh, squaring off against each other. Mets fans love Pete Alonso breaking, you know, tying the franchise record with 41 home runs and becoming the first guy, David David Wright, in 2010 to get 100 RBIs. That's big for Mets fans, and they talk about that. But you're right with the whole the whole aspect of, um, you know, selling seats. The only way you're going to do that other than having a David Wright retirement ceremony at the end of last season is by winning baseball games, and that's what happened. The National Series, it was packed. You see, uh, you know, just a, a average Tuesday night against the Indians, and I can't say it's average because the two teams playing are great, but uh, usually on Tuesday night, uh, you're not seeing too many people making the trip to Queens for, the, you know, the high ticket prices, the high food prices, and stuff like that. Nobody wants to spend all that, but you're starting to see the seats fill up during that. So that I think that tells the story, too, that people are starting to find interest in the Mets, and it's because they didn't sell this team at the trade deadline. They held on, and they had some hope. And a lot of people were a little upset at the trade deadline because they didn't go all in. You know, they just brought in Strowman. They didn't get the bullpen needs. They didn't get the depth. But Brody eventually addressed that. He brought in Brad Brock to a – I 
you know, another homegrown talent. He, he actually grew up in uh, Freehold, New Jersey, went to Monmouth University, and he's been great throughout his career. He had a rough stretch with the Cubs, but I, I, I Brad Brock's a great bullpen pitcher. Trust me with that, and I'm sure you know, Mike. But in uh, Joe Panic, just the uh, you know, you're not signing these guys for massive contracts. It's like, what, what do you have to lose by bringing these guys in? So, uh, I've for a lot of the you know, around Brody in the beginning of the season for making that Jared Kelenic trade, um, you know, bringing in Cano's contract, Edwin Diaz struggling, all that stuff. Uh, we we forget to applaud him for moves like J.D. Davis and uh, Joe Panic and Brad Brock, ones that are and Marcus Stroman, ones that are really working out. So. Um, I'm happy, you know. I'm excited to see what happens this week against the Cubs because this this Cubs and Philly series, if you know they don't take care of business, that could be the season. Yep, absolutely. This is the deep end of the pool. This is what the season's been about. Um, they're trying to salvage it. And uh, listen, I'll leave with this: uh, in 2015, after they made the Cespedes trade, they had a a weekend series against the Pirates, if you remember, where they got swept and lost a couple of really tough games while they were at it. So. Uh, even during that season, they had a couple of uh, fits and starts, even after Cespedes. And, uh, you know, now they're going to have to be tested and uh, and really come out and uh, and put a stop to uh, the losing streak on uh, Tuesday night. Hey, Stephen, great stuff. Appreciate you uh, joining me. We're going to do this again. Uh, be well. We'll continue to follow you on Twitter. And uh, thanks again for your time here on a Sunday, my friend. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Mike. And, uh, you know, they just got to survive August. That schedule – uh, you know, you still have the Dodgers and Braves, but it gets a little bit easier in September. So if they can get make it to September within a game or two, I think they'll be set. But, Mike, thank you so much for having me tonight. It was fun. You got it, Stephen. Stephen Macri, at Stephen Macri on Twitter, USA Today Network uh, writer, and uh, the Baseball Life podcast. You can go on at Stephen Macri. You can check him out. He's got a book coming out about Penn State. So keep following him on Twitter so that you can figure out uh, what's next in his world. Always like to get new voices here on the show. That's what we're all about. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back, wrap up right after this. The Talking Mets podcast loves catching up with Mets alumni. Hear former pitcher Doug Sisk talk about the 1986 team when he joined me for the 30th anniversary weekend on May 29th, 2016. No, you know what? We were no different than anybody else right now. Just that right now, I think with all the cell phones, all the multimedia and all that, I mean, you can't get away with anything. Back then, it's not that we tried to get away with anything or anything like that. It was just we were free-spirited. We did what it took to win the game on and off the field. If we needed to be prepared whatever way it was, everybody was different. We had guys who would drink some beer in the front of the plane. We had guys that would drink this or have fun. And the other guys were playing Trivial Pursuit. In the middle of the plane, everybody was different, and they all respected what we did, but there was never one time where none of us ever focused on the game of baseball, and Davey will tell you that 100%. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Great stuff by Stephen Macri, and I, I always enjoy, I'm trying to get new voices on here um, that could really give a, a different take and, and bounce off of me, so hopefully you enjoyed Stephen. I did, and I anticipate we're going to have him again. Uh, as far as the podcast, we'll be back next Sunday. Uh, I don't think it's an understatement. This is a huge series against the Cubs. Uh, the, the, the city field should be electric, and then they go on the road to Philadelphia, 
And then they have the Nats over Labor Day after Labor Day into early September. Uh, and this is what it's all about. And and like I said earlier, uh, this is why teams do all these rebuilding programs to get to the point where they can compete. And I think, you know, if you had, you know, maybe you wouldn't sign up for 68 and 63 in spring training. But if someone said, take a chance or... Uh, on on a, on a maybe, and then I'll give you Mets being out a couple of games of the second wild card going into labor, the week of Labor Day. You know, I don't think anybody would say that would be a, a disappointment. So it'll be uh, really interesting to see how this team responds. Marcus Stroman takes the mound. Uh, everybody's been talking about how uh, Jason Vargas and comparing numbers of Vargas to Stroman. I'm more concerned about Wheeler, like I said, throughout the program. We'll put that aside. Uh, a lot of what Stroman has talked about being a local guy is about taking the ball and coming up big. Uh, I know he's been a bit of a disappointment, but I think he was pitching really well against Cleveland before he had the hamstring. And the Mets all year have been taking a conservative approach with their players. So Stroman gets the ball. Uh, I, I have to say, if I told you who would you rather have at the beginning of the year in a big game, Stroman or Vargas, I think you all 10 out of 10, you know who you would say. And He's going to kick it off on Tuesday night at City Field. Hey, I want to thank everybody for joining me here today. I want to thank, thank Stephen Macri. Of course, you could check out Stephen on Twitter, at Stephen Macri. Uh, also, uh, check out his uh, podcast, the Baseball Life Podcast. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. You can continue to get the show over at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media. And you could also get the show on iTunes. Please leave me your review on Apple Podcasts. It's greatly appreciated. SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm also working on trying to get on another big service, so stay tuned for that. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Get ready for a big week of baseball. We'll be back with another edition of the Talking Mets podcast next week, Labor Day weekend. Be well, everybody.